Spooky's come out, as we were recording, he came out a few times and looked at me. He's clearly gone from being afraid of me to tolerating my presence in what is clearly his apartment. (laughs) (laughs) He spends more time there than you do. Welcome to Questioning the Canon. We are the podcast that questions whether the classics are worth reading. I am Felicia Diegas, a high school English teacher. And I'm Ben Rathard, a small town physician who's getting over something in my throat. My voice is not what it should be. Yeah, you'd think as a doctor you'd never get sick. I feel like they, that's on you. It, it is. I, I misplaced <laughs> the uh, jewel that I was given. Um, oh. that, uh, keeps me, anyway, I don't know. Pretty irresponsible <laughs> of you, honestly. It, it is. Felicia, how are you this evening? I am great, actually. How are you? You know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm better every minute. Your voice was really struggling a little earlier this week, mm-hmm. which meant my avocado, which we will eat later, went bad. So I had to go to the store again to get another avocado. Yes. That's all your fault. Yeah, it, it, it is. Avocado, you say, because we're going to have an avocado with garnet sauce in it. And which I, sounds much nicer than it. I'm sure it actually is. Yes, uh, talk about this more later. But I was mm-hmm. looking up the recipe for garnet sauce just to make sure we had it right from the book. And sure enough, it pulls up a quote from the book, and that's like how people know garnet sauce is from the bell jar. Yeah, we probably looked at the same exact website. So the bell jar, Sylvia Plath. I've wanted to read this book for forever, 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 forever. One of your favorites. Yeah, one of my favorite books. This is our second podcast in which we've done a favorite book of mine. First, Wuthering Heights. Now this. Thank yes. you for indulging me. Apparently they happen in your birthday month. So there oh, you go. that's true. Yeah, we did Wuthering Heights in my birthday month. Happy that's birthday right. to me. Yeah, I read this book for the first time in college in my early 20s, and it was kind of a formative text for me. It just sort of, you know, I think a lot of women in their early 20s, are high achieving and, you know, also struggle a little, could relate to that a lot. And I, I really did. It was sort of like, I'm not alone. And also Sylvia Plath's writing is just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Truly had a genius uh, mm-hmm. ability to write. Yes. It, you know, the conversation about struggling, depression, mental instability in general, you know, like it's it's not really a conversation that people, women are ever encouraged to have, especially back then, you know, like. No, no no one wants to hear this. (laughs) Well, and especially if you, like her, do so well in other parts of their life. She was very academically excelled. She had lots of achievements. Now, we'll get into this, but she started publishing when she was a kid. Oh, my gosh. So I, I think it's really hard for people when they see somebody who's so high performing to understand that they might be really struggling with some mental health, depression, anxiety issues. That is very much, yeah, exactly right. It's like, no, if, if you're succeeding in one major and public venue of your life, we have to assume you have the whole package. Everything else is together. You're not, right. you know, ma- you're not masking. Definitely. Nobody would ever consider you'd be masking. Right. Uh, you're getting A's. So what's your problem? <laughs> exactly. 
I heard a quote this morning from a, a podcast that I really liked. The quote was, they said, no one reads famous books. And I heard that same quote from that same podcast this yeah, morning. If books could kill. Absolutely. What a great mm-hmm. podcast. That kind of rang with me for the podcast we do here. You know, is it like we are going back to read these books that like people like myself, I'm familiar with the bell jar, but I literally never would have taken the time to go back and read it, except I want to. So I'm, you know, taking that deliberate effort. Yet most people know the bell jar has to do with like depression, suicide attempts, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, I think they when they think about it, they're like, oh, it's about the crazy girl. Boom. There we go. That's a word I am doing my best to weed out of my vocabulary with limited success. Yeah, same here. I was thinking, though, that like we can expand the quote that I heard this morning to say, like, no one reads the books that everyone has read. Like mm. we have lots and lots of books that we just know what they're about. You know, like yeah, everybody knows what Huckleberry Finn's about. It's about the raft, you know, and slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and like yeah. if you could like boilerplate it down to like three sentences, then ah, you've got it. There's nothing. But what I love so much about what we do with this podcast is, is like how we, you know, explode these books to talk about the, the nitty yeah. gritty detail, the context and all that. And there's just so much to be gotten out of it there. I love it. I like that phrase you used, explode these books. I use the word because an exploded diagram is the term for like if you take a car engine and you pull all the pieces apart, but you can see them on the page. And there's like, you know, it shows how they fit together there, but you can still see each piece. That's Mm. kind of what we're doing. We're taking the work itself, pulling it apart so that you can see how it fits together and why that's relevant. Whereas, you know, us... 50, 60, 80 years later um, in these books, it's like, you know, it can look like a brick of charcoal. I don't know what Catcher in the Rye is all about, but when you dig into it, it makes a little bit more sense. Mm. I like that a lot. All right. To anyone out there who's not read The Bell Jar or would like a brush up, here's the synopsis. Our novel opens with Esther Greenwood stressing over living in New York City while working as a magazine writer for the summer. She is an upperclassman in college and has won some awards for her writing, and is now hobnobbing at parties between deadlines and living at a hotel for women. Her friend Doreen is pretty and popular and fascinating to Esther. One night while stuck in traffic on the way to a party, the two girls are coaxed by a nearby bar patron over for a drink. The man, Lenny, convinces them to go back to his apartment where he plays records and pours drinks. Doreen and he begin to engage in rough, drunken foreplay, and Esther slips out unnoticed. She walks home and thinks about the medical student from her hometown she has dated in the past, Buddy Willard. She takes a hot bath and goes to bed, to be awoken by a hotel worker bringing a near-passed-out Doreen to her. Doreen vomits on Esther, and she resolves that she is not like Doreen at all. Esther attends a banquet hosted by her magazine. Doreen is absent, spending the day with Lenny instead, but her friend Bessie attends, as well as other women writers from the magazine. The food is lavish and reminds her of her grandfather who worked in a kitchen at an expensive country club. She reflects on how earlier that morning her boss, J.C., called her into her office to discuss her career plans, and she was not sure what to say. After the banquet, Esther and Betsy go to a movie, but feel very ill and go home to throw up and pass out in the bathroom. She wakes up in hospital with Doreen attending her and explaining that 10 other girls got sick with tomaine poisoning from the banquet. We'll get to that later. Wait, I was just going to ask you. Yep. I was going through my notes and I had written down as I was listening to the book, Tomaine? What does does that even mean? (laughs) Esther is invited to lunch by an interpreter at the UN who was given her information by Buddy's mother. She reflects on Buddy visiting her in college and their romantic involvement at the junior prom and later his medical school. When she learns he has had a sexual relationship with a waitress he had worked with, she grows disgusted with him, knowing he is, quote, a hypocrite for not advertising this fact. 
The interpreter takes her to lunch and then back to his hotel where they drink, listen to music and end up napping without having sex before he drives her home. Esther muses on how, sound like a bad night, honestly. It sounds truly <laughs> lovely. Reading it again, I was like, yeah, OK. Esther muses on how she would like to part with her virginity to be even with Buddy. In a memory, she recalls visiting Buddy at a sanitarium with his mother after he got tuberculosis at medical school. There, he teaches her to ski, which she enjoys until she breaks her leg. Her term at the magazine comes to a close, and she feels worse. She meets Doreen's friend Marco, who takes her to a club and assaults her outside. She punches him, and she returns to her hotel. She rides a train to her mother's house in the suburbs to stay for the summer. She is crestfallen when her mother informs her she has not been accepted into the writing class she was planning to occupy her time with. At home, she toys with writing a novel, taking a job, and dabbles in poetry, uncomfortable and depressed. She sees a psychiatrist at her mother's friend's suggestion, but feels frustrated by the session. She nearly lets a sailor seduce her in a park, but cuts it short when she thinks she sees Buddy's mother nearby. Her psychiatrist speaks to her mother and recommends she be treated with electroshock therapy. Esther considers leaving home, but elects to go through with the procedure. She is brought to the hospital and sees other patients in various states of poor mental health and is terrified. She undergoes some electroshock therapy treatments, but does not feel better and ends up cutting her wrists in the bathroom before deciding to just bandage them and take a bus trip to Boston. She visits the beach near Deer Island Prison and contemplates using the razors she has brought with her or drowning, but does neither. Esther's college friend Jody takes her out with her friends to a lake, possibly at Esther's mother's request. In this time period, she contemplates suicide at home, delivers flowers at the hospital, and visits her father's grave. Finally, she hides in a crawl space under the house and takes 50 sleeping pills. She wakes up at her local hospital, but is soon transferred to a large psychiatric unit after breaking a mirror. There, she is irritated, fearful, and annoyed. When nurses leave a tray of thermometers on her bed, she knowingly kicks them over but feigns innocence. Esther's benefactor, Mrs. Guinea, arrives and relocates her to a smaller private psychiatric hospital. She is surprised to find her friend Joan is a resident at the new hospital as well due to her suicidal tendencies. Joan reports how Esther's disappearance and discovery were documented in the local newspapers. Esther is placed on insulin treatment and begins to have reactions. Her mother brings her flowers for her birthday, but she throws them away, later telling her psychiatrist she actually hates her mother. Her psychiatrist arranges electroshock therapy for her, indicating that the electroshock she was given before wasn't performed correctly. Esther trusts her psychiatrist, saying she, in fact, loves her. Joan and Esther both receive letters from Buddy, who is getting out of the sanitarium, to Esther's annoyance. As they are doing well, they can leave the hospital on day passes, and Esther travels into the city where she meets a man named Irwin at the library, who takes her back to his apartment for drinks, and where she decides to give him her virginity. He drives her to Joan, where she continues to bleed vaginally afterwards. At the emergency room, the doctor is able to identify and stop the hemorrhage. Joan unceremoniously hangs herself near a pond at the hospital. Esther is visited by Buddy, who is concerned he is the cause of Esther and Joan's mental issues, as he has dated both girls. She reassures him, and he wonders aloud who will marry her now that she has been institutionalized. She attends Joan's funeral. The book ends as Esther prepares herself for a meeting with the hospital doctors to determine if she is ready to be discharged. The end. All right, two words. <clears throat> Fuck Buddy. <laughs> I hate him. Buddy, buddy, buddy. Like the audacity of coming to her and saying, am I the problem with both of these women? Like, you're not the main character, buddy. <laughs> like, no, he he is. Uh, 
he is a bumbling idiot who really thinks he's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's funny when she, you know, visits him in medical school mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, they're going through and seeing all these things together. It sort of reminds me how I ask you to give me details about like certain medical things you do. Like I was asking you about what stitches are like giving sure. stitches. And, yep, yep. Um, I could never be a doctor, but like if somebody wanted to show me around and like show me stuff, I would be fascinated. I'm fascinated by that stuff. Esther was, you know, she was very interested, you know, in the the baby being delivered. And Mm -hmm. I think Buddy like dressed her up in like a wrapped her head up so she looked like a patient and he could just kind of take her wherever he wanted to. Things were different back then. I can tell you that there definitely were parts of the scene where. Before that, where Buddy was kind of like toying with Esther about going to the junior prom or not, that was really shitty of him. Like he was doing some like power stuff to like make Esther like want to go and want to go with him. And she's not able to go. Oh, it turns out you can go, you know, like that kind of bullshit there. To follow that up with whenever they're at medical school and Buddy, they're in his room and he just whips out his penis. He he does. Yeah. And he says, well, this is what I look like. Uh-huh. Time that I'd see what you look like. And just matter of factly, like, says, like, well, time to get naked. And it's like, like clinical. Yes. And clearly, you know, Esther is, as a, as a narrator, good Lord, she's honest. I mean, everything she says is exactly what she's thinking. She's um, the opposite of an unreliable narrator. I I disagree with that, too. Okay. <laughs> oh, All yeah. Right. She She's being honest and she's reporting where her thinking is. But her thinking okay. is not always, you know, real. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, But you're right. Yeah, she's super duper honest. But like she's not in any beginnings of the means turned on or interested in this. It's a it's a weird situation. But he's a weird guy. Weird Mm -hmm. guy. I think I'm a little swayed because I have read her entire collected diaries. I, I reread through some of it in just recently. But in college, I read the entire thing. It's like 750 pages. Holy cow. Yeah. And she is brutally honest there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess what I mean by the fact that she's she's the opposite of an unreliable narrator, she's not trying to manipulate or convince you of anything. Yes. Say, um, not all, but that kind of is a hallmark of an unreliable narrator. They have an agenda. And mm-hmm. what her agenda would not be like, super duper clear if she has one there i mean like don't get me wrong i think there's a definite bent to like how she's presenting herself and all that and like here's the interesting thing is like what is omitted from this book that really ought to be there for example joan kills herself mm-hmm. we are given no lead up to that like mm-hmm. why on earth did this woman actually carry through with their suicide? We know she's got suicidal tendencies and she's threatened it a few times, but that is different than actually hanging yourself. Sure. We don't know, <laughs> you know, cause like, you know, Esther wasn't, uh, I, th- I mean, Joan kind of annoyed Esther, I think is the yeah. truth. So. Yeah. Her suicide kind of comes out of nowhere for sure. In the beginning of the book, whenever we're learning about uh, her benefactor, Mrs. Guinea for the first time and Esther's describing when she's drinking the finger bowl contents, it's like, like, <laughs> Got I like little flowers. <laughs> she didn't know what it was. It looked like a little beverage. So I was like, that was that is what I would do in that scenario. I've never mm. been around finger bowls before. No, me either. But I absolutely would do that. Like, I'm just going to drink this to be polite, but it's weird. It's in a bowl. <laughs> I thought some interesting things were dropped in the book. 
at the beginning, she references that she has the sunglasses case that's got some shells on it that she snaps off. And now she gives it to the baby to play with. So we know that Esther goes on to have a child later, but it is never mentioned again. Mm. There's like it's it's almost like a frame story. It's like a ghost of a frame story. But it's just like interesting that detail and then yeah i when you said that i like furrowed my brow i i was like i don't remember that but as you explained it yeah i do remember that the the case interesting part where she's talking about how her mother and buddy's mother were friends and they Mm -hmm. were friends from college and they both married their professors and it's like (laughs) god so common yes I know not not i don't personally know but i know people in my life who have done that you know it's like yeah, you know, well, we, we got along pretty well. And just like, Ugh. oh, boy, that's so unethical. You know, obviously, I teach high school, but I have taught college. I taught many college classes, both when I was in grad school and afterward. I cannot conceive of sleeping with one of my students. It just sure there is a brick wall between me and having any attraction to my students. Okay, okay, I have to say, similar feeling about my patients. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, that. it just isn't there. Like, I don't know how, and I'm happy, I'm certainly happy it happened this way, but there's a giant switch in my brain that will never be turned on. It's like, yep. no, no, if you're in the realm of patient, we're done here. There's just, there's nothing to think about. So I mentioned uh, tomaine poisoning earlier, which was thought to be the cause of the, the 11 girls getting sick at the, the luncheon. So I thought this was interesting because I've heard of tomaine poisoning before, never looked into it. And there's a reason I I have heard of it and why it's not really a thing anymore is because it was always a myth. Like there is no such thing as tomaine poisoning. Yes. The thought came about probably sometime in like, I think the 19th century, 1800, something like that. Some Italian scientists theorized that maybe there were breakdown products left in food that were rotten. And, you know, and he called them tomains and like it was just like a theory. We knew by 1910 that they still not had identified anything that was like, quote unquote, a tomain, but it stayed alive in modern zeitgeisty, you know, stuff up until the point of this book, up until probably like the 80s, people were still talking about tomain poisonings. Like, it's not real. If you get food poisoning, you got it from a bacteria. You got it from Campylobacter. You got it from E. coli. You got it from staph. One of those things. But in the book, even Doreen says they tested it. The stuff was full of tomains. Like, mm-hmm. no, they didn't. There is no test for tomains. <laughs> like, so when it was still around at this time and, and possibly into the 80s, was the medical community like, no, this is not a thing? Yes. And it was just something that, that kept continuing in popular? I have a parallel for you. Spider bites. People think they get bit by spiders whenever they have an abscess. I have a, I got bit by a spider. Look, it's giant. This is what happens. There are no spiders in America that create bites like that. That is not a thing. Those are, Whoa. yeah, those are staph abscesses, period. Not a spider bite. Yet, people just know. They just know. <laughs> like, I've definitely thought I have have had spider bites in the past. I think I might be allergic to mosquitoes is what's happening though, because I get mosquito bites and they turn huge and disgusting. Yeah. And you know, those are mosquito bites, you know, Mm there, that's actually a wheel and it's got a different consistency to Mm -hmm. a clear infection there for that. But anyway, it's, it's, we brown recluse and black widow. That's it. That's (laughs) it. Wow. 
I feel like I'm this book is so chock full of medical stuff that like I'm just like weeding through the smaller things and I'm saving the big stuff. Yeah, no, it's I, she she does seem to be like fascinated by medical stuff, but also the the food poisoning, which is what it was, right? Food poisoning. Yes, food, it was food poisoning. Absolutely. It was really the bad, crab apparently. meat. Yeah. Yes, from, from probably <laughs> the crab meat. Okay, I want to ask you about this book and its influence on you and. You know, you said you were. Did you say you were in high school when you read this for the first time? College. College. I was a freshman. You know, it's a very, it's a very raw book. There's some frustration about reading Esther, and she's going along, and when she's falling apart, and she just can't seem to really pick herself back up. You know, like the depression is really sinking mm-hmm. in on her. Mm-hmm. What kind of an impact did that have on you? I mean, like you, you were saying that, like it makes mm-hmm. you saw yourself in this character to some extent. Is that is that right? So yeah, the impact of this book on me. Um, I was a freshman in college and, uh, you know, that is as far as I understand and in my experience, that is when mental disorders tend to come out mm-hmm. more yes. is early yes. adulthood. So, you know, I was 20, 21 and starting to recognize that, you know, I was, I was struggling a little bit, that something was a little bit off and I, I was experiencing depression. I couldn't name it though. I didn't really understand what it was. And so when I read The Bell Jar, and here was this college student, straight A, getting scholarships, high achieving, high performing, and that was me. I was all those things in college. But also she's got this private inner life where she's just so depressed and she is having so much trouble understanding the world around her because she's looking at it through this lens of depression Mm -hmm. and it's hard for her to cope with things. And also to, I think, juggle her perception or, or juggle the perception people have of her Mm. as this, as this high achieving person, but also sort of feeling like she's not who they think she is because she is struggling mentally like this and I really really identified with that and I was like I am not alone this isn't just me that must have been very affirming to oh encounter. yeah so much and I I'm not sure I've ever fallen in love with a book so fast oh. <laughs> that's sweet I liked how the book kind of ended on a hopeful note more or less like she's just getting ready to go into this meeting and hopefully it goes well but we don't really know what happens from that point mm-hmm. forward and mm-hmm. I thought the parts where, you know, she described eating the avocado was gross, but also the part when she was at home eating raw hamburger and eggs when she was depressed. (laughs) I love her food descriptions in this book, though. I mean, I am a big fan of food. I love all sorts of food. I love eating. I love especially descriptions of food in literature. It's one of my favorite parts of any book that I read if it's there. So her description, especially of that banquet where she gets sick. The crab meat in the avocado, the way she like steals the caviar from the people next to her. <laughs> yes, I love yes, that. Yes. And when I first read this and, you know, I read where she was getting sick, I'm like, yeah, you ate all that caviar. Of course you're sick. <laughs> yeah, man, that's going to happen there. She she mentioned at one point uh, the vichyssoise. I can't mm-hmm. pronounce that word very well, but, you know, it's a type of soup. And I'm like, that is a lot of letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a French soup. Gotcha. 
talked about that. Uh, I loved her description of clothing, uh, the mm-hmm. Shangtung sheath she just mentions, and I had to look that up. Like, what kind of dress is that? And I was like, oh, that's actually kind of cute, you know, like that, like a mm-hmm. ribbon across the the middle there. And later she she borrowed somebody's dirndl, which is like the traditional German like uh, lederhosen <laughs> type. Oh, I don't of, remember that. I can't remember where that was in the book there, but just like she's just like casually mentioning fashion things. I'm like, mm-hmm. like what what is that? I don't even know what that is. Uh, I will say, like, her just casually mentioning very specific, very interesting details is something she does in her diaries throughout. Mm-hmm. Just her observations uh, of everything. And then she puts in those tiny details, which makes her observations really come to life. That just That's just how she writes. It's amazing. Yeah, it works, too. Like, you, you, mm-hmm. you're, you're there and all that. Last thing I wanted to mention was the she uses it two times in the book whenever she's really in her feelings and she says, I am, I am, I am like that's the one quote I know from this book before I read it. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, What does that mean to you? I think she is sort of inserting her existence, because when you really struggle with depression, in, in my experience, it can be easy to feel like you don't actually exist or that you don't want to exist. Yes. So uh, saying I am, I am present, I, I'm here, I'm alive. Mm-hmm. I'm going to float this idea out here now and we're going to come back to it later. But uh, perhaps she's asserting a sense of self that she does not really feel. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a there's a sense of who she is is always a question. I don't know who I am. Maybe I'm like mm-hmm. this. Maybe I'm like that. I don't know. You know, so. And that's something that she I, I probably am going to keep bringing up these diaries. But that is something that she is constantly questioning. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Who am I going to be? What actually am I able to do? What do I want to do? You've been reading her diaries. My gosh, that's that's 700 pages. That's so much. I've never read that much about anybody. I don't think. I wish I had. I wish I had made more time to read more before this. But you know, I'm not a college student anymore, and you didn't. You don't expect this when you are a young college student. But you actually get busier after college. <laughs> so. Yes. Um. So I don't have that kind of time anymore to read it. But I, um, did make a lot of dog ears and highlights and (laughs) i'm not one of those people who counts books as like precious commodities that need to be preserved Ah. i I think books can be used they can be dog-eared they can i write in margins of books all the time i don't know maybe it's just an english teacher got to annotate thing in me all right so biography of sylvia plath Sylvia Plath was born on October 27, 1932, in Boston, Massachusetts, to highly educated parents. Her mother, Aurelia, taught at Boston University, and her father, Otto, was an entomologist who also taught at Boston University. Plath began writing at a very young age and published her first poem in the Boston Herald when she was eight years old. Wow. Yeah. Over the next few years, she published more poems in various magazines and newspapers. She also began to keep a diary when she was 11. And I will say, I keep talking about her diaries. The the published, unabridged versions of her diaries starts just before she starts college. Okay. So I'm not, I don't think we have those early diaries. That makes sense. Her father died when she was eight years old after a foot amputation due to untreated diabetes. His death affected Sylvia hard and caused her to lose her faith. 
She later wrote one of her most well-known poems, Daddy, shortly before her own death. Sylvia went to Wellesley High School and graduated in 1950. Shortly after graduating, she had her first national publication in the Christian Science Monitor. Hmm. She, yeah. She oh, then attended... Magazine. I know. Yeah. Lots of stories get published in it. I've never read a single thing in the Christian Science Monitor. I think I have, but it's just like, like, why was this a national publication that like mattered? It mattered, you know? Like, yeah. In, in I don't, way. I don't get it either. Okay. She then attended Smith College and excelled academically, although she struggled with depression, as we were talking about. The summer before her senior year, she was awarded a guest editor position at Mademoiselle Magazine, for which she lived in New York for a month. Here's the part of her biography where nothing is surprising after hearing your synopsis. She was disappointed with the experience and later wrote The Bell Jar, largely based on her time in New York. Following this, she was not accepted into a Harvard seminar with the author Frank O'Connor, which caused her mental health to spiral. Mm. She underwent electroshock therapy treatment, another experience documented in The Bell Jar, which seemed to help her for a while, but on August 24th, 1953, she made her first medically documented suicide attempt. Mm. There were others, but this was the first that it was medically documented by crawling under the porch of her home and taking her mother's sleeping pills. Oh, wow. So it's like directly the book. Okay. Straight from, yeah. She did not die, but remained there for three days. This mm. made the newspapers and there was a search for her before she was found alive. So again, straight from her life. Holy cow. Yeah. She spent the next six months receiving more electroshock and insulin shock treatment, which uh -huh. I believe we're going to talk about. Yeah. She seemed to recover and went back to college for her senior year and graduated with honors. Worth noting, she did not write in her diary at all her senior year. She was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to the University of Cambridge, where she continued to write poetry and publish in the school newspaper. There, in February 1956, she met poet Ted Hughes. They married in June of that same year. One year late. Yeah, they got married real quick, which, you know, says great things about the future of their relationship, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whirlwind <laughs> marriage. Yeah. One year later, they moved to the United States. Sylvia found it difficult to find time to write and work. She took a teaching job at Smith, which she disliked, then as a receptionist in the psychiatric unit of a hospital. She continued to work at night and attended creative writing seminars, which helped her develop a more unique style. This marked the beginning of her confessional poetry, for which she was most well-known. But worth saying, she was anxious about writing that kind of confessional poetry. It made her uncomfortable. Sure. Their first child, Frida, was born in April of 1960, and in October, her first book of poetry, The Colossus, was published. In February of 1961, Plath suffered a miscarriage. In a letter to her psychiatrist, she says that Hughes beat her two days before the miscarriage. In August 1961, Plath and Hughes met Ashia and David Webel, and Hughes formed a connection with Ashia. In January 1962, the couple's second child, Nicholas, was born, and in August, Plath finished writing The Bell Jar. In June of 1962, Plath was in a car accident, which she said later was a suicide attempt. The next month, she discovered Ashia and Hughes were having an affair, so she and Hughes separated. Plath had a sudden burst of creativity starting in October 1962, writing most of the poems which make up her most well-known and well-regarded poetry collection, Ariel. 
In December 1962, she moved to London with her two children, Frida, two years old, and Nicholas, nine months, and rented a small flat in which the poet William Butler Yeats had once lived. However, her life there was hard. They experienced the coldest winter in that part of England in a hundred years, during which the pipes froze. The Bell Jar, her only novel, was published in January 1963 under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas. For the most part, critics did not pay attention to the book, which made Sylvia anxious. That same month, she revealed to her doctor that she had been experiencing a major depressive episode for the last six or seven months. Concerned, he prescribed her antidepressants and urged her to be hospitalized. When that didn't work, he arranged for a live-in nurse to help her with her mental health and the children. However, the morning the nurse was to arrive on February 11th, 1963, she could not get into the flat. A workman helped her enter, and they found Plath in the kitchen dead with her head in the oven. The kitchen had been sealed with tape and towels to prevent the children from being harmed by the gas. Hughes had Plath buried in England and insisted the name on her gravestone read Sylvia Plath Hughes. Wow, that's Ted Hughes, man. <laughs> like, oh. I only know him from the context of Sylvia Plath, but, you know, guy seems like a real monster. <laughs> So I wrote a couple of papers about Sylvia Plath in grad school and uh, for one specific class about academic writing. And I got an A on a paper with a professor that was very hard to get an A from. But he handed it back to me and said, a little tough on Ted Hughes, aren't you? <laughs> wow. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I had read a little bit that the book, when it came out, like you said, really just was kind of like ignored. There was mm -hmm. a couple of reviews that you could find. It was like, yeah, you know, it's like, it's, it's a lot. The book's a lot. But then she committed suicide. And then the book became so much more. Like, Well, she that. also published it under Victoria Lucas, not her right. name. You know, she had already published a book of poetry, The Colossus, before. So maybe the bell jar would have gotten more attention if she had published under her name. But the reason she didn't was because, for one, she thought novel writing kind of below her, honestly. Mm. She was, you know, poetry. Poetry is the ultimate form of expression and, and artistic expression. And so novel writing to her was sort of pedestrian. But she had this novel in her. She wrote it. Uh, and she was just very anxious about submitting it for publication. Also, because she drew so much on her own experiences... She was anxious about that as well, especially if her family or friends read it. She didn't really want them to know that many intimate details. Absolutely. Yeah, so Sylvia actually committed suicide, which is really mm -hmm. like saying something. I, I'm struggling right now to think of other famous authors who committed suicide. There are many. It's, it's Hemingway. Not, yes, there we go. There's something to that, to like living your life and even like going so far as having your thoughts expressed but then maybe not liking the fact that you did that later i don't know where it all factors yeah in. i mean you know there's the old cliche that that people who are artistic writers painters etc are inclined to have mental health issues yes i don't know to what extent that is true it's not completely out of the realm of belief mm -hmm. i wouldn't like to speculate because i don't know i i feel like it's in the exact same arena of philosophy where people will say like, you know, without trauma, we wouldn't have art. Whereas like, mm -hmm. I don't hold that, you know, it's like we don't, we don't need to abuse or rape anybody for the purpose of, you know, some greater good. No, thank you. 
Virginia Woolf is another famous. She did. Committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Put, them, put them rocks in your pocket. Yeah, that's your good point. To say that same end is just like traumas where great works come from. No, it's mental health. That's where, you know, great works come from. I don't hold to any of that. Like, no, I think you can be a perfectly mentally and physically healthy author and still have great things to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally with that. You know, and, and a person can have perspective even if they aren't experiencing the bowels of despair. You know, they can like check themselves out enough to say like, you know what? I don't know what this person's going through, but I don't know. It's Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of being an author is being able to put yourself in situations that you've never been in. Yes, but also there's the old adage, write what you know. Always true. Which obviously Sylvia Plath did a lot of mm-hmm. in Belgar. I've read only a little bit of her poetry. I love poetry, but in very small doses. Like, I am the same way. Poetry is not my favorite form of writing at all. I've never been able to connect with most poetry. But one of the things that I really love about Sylvia Plath, in addition to loving the Belgar, is that I like her poetry. And I don't like, I don't connect with a lot of poetry. And specifically her poetry in Ariel, her book of poetry that was published posthumously. The Colossus, not so much. She uses a lot of like nature imagery, which is kind of not my thing. She uses a lot of it. Ariel is very visceral, very emotional, in some Mm -hmm. cases very angry. Yeah, I would think, yes. Yeah, and I really connected with that. And of course she would be angry at this point in her life. You know, she just found out her husband was having an affair. She left him. She's got a baby and a toddler. She feels completely betrayed. She gave so much of herself to Hughes. She gave up so much of her writing time to give him writing time so that she could take care of the children. You know, she was angry. She was justifiably angry. So that, that poetry really, I think, it doesn't just speak to me. There's a reason. It's one of the most well-known poetry collections in in literature yes i've read lady lazarus at your request um, my for favorite that. poem and what a poem holy cow that's mm-hmm. uh that she she's very very effective very moving it affects a feeling right and lady lazarus is about her mostly about her suicide attempts yeah it's it's hard you know whenever the person with the the subject that they're focusing on is you know, suicide or depression are their own struggles. It can be validating to read that, but then whenever the author themselves effectively loses their battle with these mm-hmm. things, you know, mm-hmm. that like she she never found a way into a sustainable contentedness. Like she was never never able to get up out of these places there. So it's it's difficult to say like, are these what can she convey that is helpful? I guess that's that's I'm being pragmatic. I was like, yes, but the writing should be helpful. It should help mm-hmm. people. I was like, that's not actually the point of writing. You know, like I'm, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. That's a very pragmatic point of view that kind of just doesn't apply to Sylvia Plath at all. Yeah. It, she's not trying to be helpful. Right. She's not. She's being descriptive, you know. Which, she's being expressive. Yes. And that, that's the difference, too, because, like, you know, there's there's people in this life who are more reporting on what they find. And there are people in this life who are being prescriptive for what they think you should be doing. And, you know, like this, she's not giving any kind of instruction here. You know, like, Mm-mm. here here's how you do better. It's like, no, I am suffering and in torment and in pain. And it is awful. And yeah. here, here's that experience for you to experience. Oh. Which I think is valuable. 
I think it, I mean, I found the bell jar helpful mm-hmm. for my state of mind at that time, because like I said, it made me feel less alone. Yeah. Um, but she was not trying to help anybody. I think with the bell jar, she was, she was straightforwardly telling a story of what happened to her. Yes. And I, I think she found that interesting. I mean, who wouldn't find that interesting in their own life? Mm-hmm. And she just wanted to tell that story. I am not sure she was actually trying to do anything except express herself, which I think is the only thing she was ever trying to do in her right. writing. I, I don't even think this book is not even like promoting a conversation on mental health. It has done so, but mm-hmm. I do not feel like she wrote it with the intention for that to be the case, you know, like. Her intention with all of her writing was to become a great poet, was to become a great writer. And she says that over and over and over again throughout her entire diaries from the time she starts college. She wants to be a famous poet. Yeah, that makes sense, too, honestly. So I'm going to take that moment and I want to walk this forward a little bit here because what I want to talk about tonight in the medical corner is a little bit dicey, okay. maybe, maybe controversial. I don't know. But with the disclaimer right up front that armchair diagnosing anybody is inherently dangerous. Mm-hmm. Now, Sylvia Plath and Esther Greenwood specifically, because, you know, the subject matter of our book, although they're one and the same here, this person's long gone. I am not their provider or anything like that. I couldn't hope to be. But I could not help but notice during the course of the book that this is a very, very well laid out internal description of what it would be like to have what I think this person has as far as a diagnosis goes. Mm -hmm. So interesting things to notice here is that Esther has a slight disconnect with reality, and it's subtle. It's not something you can pick right up on there. She will reassign events and facts to how she feels about them. For example, with Buddy, he admits to her that he has had sexual relationships with this waitress there. As far as we can tell from the book, this is not a point of contention to the point where like, he's never lied about this. You know, Mm -hmm. like he did not tell her, no, I'm a virgin. And then like backtracked on it. But she is having huge feelings over the fact that he is not going to be pure, which to her matter. You know, she needs Mm -hmm. that like sexual purity is a very important thing in her mindset. Fine. But because he doesn't have that, he is now a hypocrite and a terrible person. And she's figured that out. And that is not what happened. (laughs) You know, and she feels like he betrayed her in some way and he didn't. Right. And he didn't. But she has huge feelings. And in this moment, it's like it's dysregulation. It's like she's not able to put it into like the appropriate context. It's like, no, the feelings are going to keep being big. And I'm going to justify those feelings by saying his behavior was out of line when, in fact, it was not. She's a jealous person. You know, that's clearly expressed here. She's jealous, not just of that, but she also gets jealous of her female friends and their experiences. Doreen. Which is true. Yeah, which is true to life. She was she would admit it in her diaries that she was just jealous of, you know, when her female friends had active dating lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I entered into this booking thinking it was really just an expression of depression. I think this was going to be about major depressive disorder. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we, we struck on other things. One thing that came to mind is that 
she had the electroshock therapy and it's not super duper clear that it worked or that it had a big impact there. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. She got better in that time period there, but she very well may have gotten better just from being away from like the stimulus of the world mm-hmm. and the things that were mm-hmm. like, you know, setting her off. This happened in her own life where she had the electroshock therapy after she got rejected from that Harvard seminar and she got better for about six months Better, I guess, is a relative term because then she she tried to commit suicide with her mother's sleeping pills. Sure. Electroshock therapy, we now know it treats depression, depression that nothing else is treating. You can help get a person out of this. But in her case, I do not feel like we are talking about just depression. It's much more complicated than that. So are you familiar with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual? It's like the psychiatric Bible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's currently on its fifth iteration. Finally, it went the fourth iteration was published in 1994. And that's the one that I went to medical school and residency with. And we use the DSM for text revision was like the, the book. And this is the book that you use to help diagnose and guide your thinking on what may be wrong with your patient psychiatrically there. Now, of, of note and interest here. They divide out types of diagnoses into five axes. The five axes constitute basically a patient's whole being, like all of their medical stuff can be defined in in these five axes. Your axis one diagnosis are like your traditional psychiatric disorders, say schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, depression. That's a type one. Type two are personality disorders. Type three are medical conditions, hypertension. You've had a heart attack, these things. Why would a heart attack be a part of the DSM? So it's not actually part of the DSM, but it's something you factor in when you're thinking about a patient. So then like an axis four is the psychosocial and environmental factors there, how much education a person has, how much money they have, what kind of a home are they going to be returning to there. And lastly, axis five is essentially, it's called global assessment of functioning. That's just basically the question of, does this person need to be admitted to the hospital or not? (laughs) Like if they're below 50, if you've got a GAF below 50, you need to be admitted. If you're above 50, you get to go. Okay, fine down and dirty. This was a framework to look at these things and has since been kind of done away with there, but unfortunately it lives large in my mind because this is like the world that I grew up in as far as how psychiatry works here. In this framework that I gave too much information on, (laughs) axis two, axis two is the personality disorders. Are you familiar at all with personality disorders? Name some. You've got antisocial personality, histrionic. You've got schizoid, schizotypical. Borderline personality disorder is the most famous one by a long shot. There are nine that are recognized, okay? Now, personality disorders, it's defined as a persistent, inflexible pattern of thinking that causes personal distress and impairment, and it is not dependent on substance abuse. Essentially, a personality disorder is something where it's like, it's kind of like the bedrock of who you are, and it is out of step with, you know, your culture, your society that you live in, and it's causing problems for you, and it gets recognized there. These don't change with time. Like, you can have good episodes and bad episodes there, but this, like, kind of slightly off way of looking at the world and understanding the world persists. The way I think about it more is like, Are you familiar with behaviorism, Uh, B.F. Skinner, his stuff there? Like, you know, like every behavior is like a predictable thing. Very vaguely in like teaching professional developments a little bit. Yeah. With personality disorders, it'd be more like the triggers for this person are much more obvious or the ways that I could manipulate this person would be much more straightforward. 
a histrionic personality disorder would be a lot like Scarlett O'Hara, like somebody who needs to be the center mm-hmm. of attention. They're like, you know, if they're not getting attention from external sources, they're just dying on the inside there. But they they want to be the performer. They want to be the center of everything there. And a person I love like, that you made a literary reference to this. It's it's a literary podcast, people. Um, <laughs> to that end, though. It's, it's relatively easy to manipulate that person if you wanted to there because you know what they want and what they're going to do to get it. And they're going to go to a kind of extraordinary links to make sure that happens there. And it's it's not fair. And it's like, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around there. You need to be a psychiatrist to really dive into stuff. Sure, and I am not sure. a psychiatrist there. The thing is, personality disorders are highly stigmatized because there, quote unquote, is no treatment. You cannot get a person better from the personality disorder they have. At best, you can help them recognize that, and then they have to grapple with the fact that the way they look at the world is broken. Who wants to do that? You know, like, to touch on it briefly, there are nine known personality disorders. They come in three clusters, cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C. A is like the odd or eccentric. There's a paranoid personality disorder. There's a schizoid personality disorder, which is the people who, like, have no emotions, it seems like. Cluster B are the emotional or erratic, and that is antisocial personality disorder. Those are the people who are like, typically we think about them as like the hardened criminals or the sociopaths. Like they Mm -hmm. just do not care that their actions hurt you. It doesn't matter to them, which is also a myth and not true. They do care. It's just that it's less. Okay. It's it's much more mutable than. Yeah, I was going to ask you about sociopathy when you. We're talking earlier. That's antisocial. Borderline personalities here, narcissistic personality disorder here, which when that's that's the thing, narcissistic personality disorder, that is narcissist. Like if if you know somebody who's a true narcissist, that's what this is. And then histrionic. Can I interrupt? Of course. Histrionic? Yes. That term? It's a terrible word. We should be (laughs) done with it. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I I was going to say. You know, the term hysterical, super. It means you have a uterus. So therefore, yeah, crazy. Not not okay with this. We need better words for this. We need better words for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Just to finish the thought, um, the cluster C are anxious and fearful. That's avoidant, dependent, obsessive, compulsive. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder is not OCD. That is a different diagnosis, which is an axis one diagnosis and not an axis two. Really? These damn Psychiatrists don't know how to name anything. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, if I haven't shown my hand too much, I am rather sure that Esther Greenwood is a person who has borderline personality disorder. Okay. To make the diagnosis of borderline, there are nine criteria. And you need to have five out of these nine. Okay. So I'm going to list them and you decide for yourself here. So – Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Now, this is interesting because this is the one that is not represented in the book. Like, I don't know that Esther seems to present that at all on the page. However, as this is basically a diary, it's possible that she's literally just not writing these feelings. I don't know. Uh, So I will say that is present in her diaries. Thank you. I thought you were going to say that. (laughs) Yes. She was very jealous of her friends in the dorm. She lived in, uh, obviously, she was at Smith College, which is an all-women's college. She hated when her friends would go out for dates without her. Mm-hmm. And she hated when men that she was dating did not communicate with her. She she really got deep down in her feelings 
when she thought that somebody was not interested in her anymore or somebody who might exit her life, even people she didn't like. There we go. Even um, people she didn't like. No yeah. one can leave. Yes. I don't remember. So Buddy is based on a real person, and I don't remember his name. But she she felt the same way about him as as Esther feels about Buddy. Yeah. She was just very ambivalent, I guess. You know, that does make sense, and that is in the book. Because, like, Buddy sucks. And, mm-hmm. like... She knows that, mm-hmm. but she keeps him around. She like, doesn't want to lose his attention. And and she is concerned about him abandoning her. Number two, unstable and chaotic interpersonal relationships, often characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation, which is known as splitting, where a person can have tremendous intrinsic value to your life or be worthless. And I I live between those two. Take Dr. Nolan, for example, her psychiatrist there. This person became just like the best of the best. Why? I don't know. She just is. You know, she's perfect. She loves her. She said so. It's it's not appropriate, but she did. Yeah. And and is it okay if I keep referring back to her diaries? Please, please. I want you to. Okay. So the first psychiatrist... Or maybe it was just a psychologist that she saw, just a psychologist. <laughs> it was either a psychiatrist or a psychologist that she saw her mother forced her to after she came back from New York and was clearly not doing well. This was before her electroshock therapy treatment. She did not like this therapist and refused to see him again. And she not only did not like him, she hated him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There we but go. then... She found a therapist or psychiatrist that she liked, and she loved him. There we go. Yep, yep. It's these extremes. We are living on either side of the fence, and it's very Mm -hmm. strong. So there we go. That that lines up there. Next, markedly disturbed sense of identity and distorted self-image. This is goodness. Yes. Think about how many times Esther said something about like, you know, it turns out I'm not like Doreen. I'm like Betsy, you know, the girl that she was making fun of like a page ago or Mm -hmm. something like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You know, her essentially lack of self is over and over again presented in the book there. And, oh, I'm like this. Oh, I'm like this. It turns out vodka is the drink for me. You know, like that that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. That's that's a really interesting scene where she just can't decide what to drink. And she's like, it's vodka. I think that that's the drink that defines me. Defines me. Like, Mm -hmm. huh? No one needed you to do that. But okay. Next, impulsive or reckless behavior. Uh, That would be unsafe sex, drug use, substance uh, misuse is a very common thing. Um, Reckless driving, binge eating, these kind of things. And there's a few times in the book when she does things that are like, why are you doing that now? And I I don't know about Sylvia, if she has moments like that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think uh, when she has attempted suicide, and sometimes, especially with a car accident, that was very impulsive. I don't really read a lot of impulsivity into her diaries. She Mm. was a very careful, methodical person. Yeah, yeah. I can say that in the book, certainly, the way that Esther is presented, you know, like these decisions she'd have to, like, slash her wrists or, you know, like the the trip she's taken out to Deer Island Prison and she's thinking about dra- drowning herself, this would be categorized as impulsive. You know, yeah, just her like, self-destructive stuff Yeah, and, and that comes on. Which, by the way, next point, recurrent suicidal ideation and self-harm. <laughs> there you go. For sure, throughout her diaries from, you know, starting in her late teens, 
suicide ideation was a thing in her life for her whole adult life. Yes, yes. Rapidly shifting, intense emotional dysregulation. This is seen mm-hmm. in the book a few times there. When just like, and it's like it's like an engine that gets revved up and out of control. And normally, you know, the neurotypical experience would be how to calm yourself down. She won't. She can't. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm I'm beyond that point at this point. Chronic feeling of emptiness. You know, my mm-hmm. you know what is my value? I'm nothing. I remember whenever. In the book, she didn't get the summer writing course that she was Which planning Which happened on. in her life. She, right, as, as you said. You know, like, and that was like, that just destroyed her. You know, mm-hmm. like, well, then what am I? If I'm not a student in this class, then there's just nothing to me. You know, so mm-hmm. she bounced around between all these different things and didn't settle on anything. Inappropriate and intense anger that can be difficult to control. You know, I think about her throwing away her mother's birthday flowers, you know, to her, like, Why'd you yeah. do that? You know. Yeah, and everything you're saying is present in her diaries. She just vacillates rapidly. Like you will read one entry where she's very calm and feeling happy and content with her life, and then the next one she's angry at everything. She hates everybody in her life, hmm. and then really almost violently angry in a lot of her entries. Just and angry at almost nothing. Just something slightly annoys her and she just is really lashing out about it. Yes. The last thing, transient stress-related paranoid and severe dissociative symptoms. And so that's like where like reality kind of becomes soft. You might start to hear voices, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You you like question your existence. You know, you you don't feel real. Um, That's Mm -hmm. a very common uh, thing that people with BPD um, will, will say when they're stressed. So anyway, like I said at the top, it's kind of dangerous to try to like armchair diagnose anybody there. And the thing is, I do think it's valuable to talk about borderline personality disorder in the context of this book, because I'm confident putting this out there that like this is a portrayal of borderline personality disorder, the whole Mm -hmm. book through from front Mm -hmm. to back. But like, I don't know that people know that, (laughs) you know, you may be familiar with borderline, you know, there may be people in your life who've got it. I have not only many patients, many people in my life have had it that, you know, have come and gone and all that. And there's, there's all kinds of things you need to keep in mind and it's tricky and it's, it's, you got to work around people and it can be kind of hard, but like, these are real people that really matter just because they have like this you know personality disorder that is something that you really need to keep in mind every time you interact with them there that doesn't mean they have like less value or something like that yeah definitely because somebody has a mental health disorder does not make them less valuable there's still people that you love and people that deserve your love yes absolutely now here's the thing as i mentioned before Personality disorders in general have a lot of stigma because essentially, sigh, well, there's nothing we can do for these people anyway. Mm-hmm. Especially with borderline, there absolutely is now. We have a treatment for it. It's called okay. dialectic behavioral therapy. And essentially what it is, it is trigger disarming. 
borderline people with borderline personality disorder have something that people with PTSD have in common where they can be triggered easily. It, it takes a very little amount to like set them off and suddenly they're emotionally dysregulated and they cannot calm the fuck down no matter mm-hmm. what happens there. Mm-hmm. And they may do something extreme. They will oftentimes threaten to do something horrible, you know, kill themselves. I'm going to leave you, you know, that kind of thing. Things that they won't mean when they feel regulated again. The whole point of DBT is to, with some exposure therapy and like desire to, the patient has to have a lot of buy-in that they want to change and make it, you can actually make a lot of progress and like desensitize a person to their triggers there. And keep in mind, I have borderline personality and my response here is not appropriate. You know, like you can actually help a person teach, teach them boundaries, teach them like, you know, the appropriate measures of things, which is like extremely heartening because the greater psychological institution for, you know, 50 years or however long we've had these things did not think this was possible. And it Mm -hmm. is. So, so people, patients can be self-aware that they have borderline personality disorder. And is that what you're saying? Yes. And it's, it's one of those things where it can be tricky because like, it can be much too big of a thing that anybody ever wants to look at. You're like, it's far easier to reject this outright and say, I do not have this. That Mm -hmm. No, you're wrong. I'm fine. Then to change your entire worldview there. But what people run into is with enough incidents of, you know, no, I'm going to kill myself or no, I'm going to, you know, I I don't know. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to like move to France or stuff like that, you know, because (laughs) for, for like things that do not deserve. I that shouldn't kind of laugh response. at that. that, that that's, a, that's a very serious thing. Yeah, sure. They can see the people that they care about in their lives and realize that they're hurting them. And mm-hmm. they're like, my behavior is continually hurting them, even though it feels right to me at the time. When I feel more stable later, I realize I do not make appropriate decisions when I am stressed. I am kind of a jerk when I'm stressed, that yeah. kind of thing, then then you can start, you know, then there's something to do. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for people struggling with mental health disorders. And like you were saying, there's that stigma. There's the idea that like, if you've got a mental health disorder, there's really nothing that you can do. You just, you know, the word crazy gets thrown around a lot, you know, which we've talked about before. It's it's hard You know, Mm. it's hard to be somebody with a mental health disorder and it's hard to love somebody with mental health disorder. Yes, there's there's a lot that goes into it. Now, something I haven't touched on here is that, you know, your axis one diagnoses, you know, your your depression, your bipolar, things like that. These are disorders that respond to medications like just going to your appointment and taking your meds. You can do so much the fuck better on these, whereas the personality disorders do not respond to them whatsoever. So therefore, that's why we resign ourselves to say there's nothing that can be done for these mm-hmm. people. You know, yes, any kind of mental health disorder there has stigma to it. 100%. You're absolutely, you're, you're dead mm-hmm. to rights there. Mm-hmm. Even Where's something it? so common as depression. Yes. Yeah, he's a sad sack. I don't, I don't want to invite mm-hmm. him out. He's just going to be a mope the whole time. You know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Like, you know, uh-huh. there's a stigma there. Absolutely. So oftentimes people with borderline personality disorder can also be what are called codependents. And a codependency comes in many different forms. The classic codependency is the wife who's married to an alcoholic husband. And she goes out of her way and bends her whole life to basically facilitate him still being an alcoholic. She won't have the friends over because he's drunk, you know, but that's okay. It's okay. You know, like she's like kind of screwing up and losing her whole life because of his disorder. And she's the codependent here. People with BPD are also codependent. 
typically. But here's the thing. I was reading on this the other day. There is a special kind of codependency for people with borderline personality disorder for people who have narcissistic personality disorder. Like they're paired with somebody who oh, has. Oh, oh, okay. There we go. So like it's like a match made in hell <laughs> where mm. the borderline person fears abandonment and will do anything to make sure that people don't leave their life. And the narcissist feels completely empty inside unless they have supply, unless they have somebody who's telling them that they're great. And they can like basically warp the person with borderline personality disorder oh, to gosh. like feed them. And their promise is that I won't leave you. I will treat you very shittily the whole time. This is like toxic on a multiple factor level. Oh my gosh, that is, that's a nightmare. And I bring it up because whenever we talk about the story of Sylvia Plath, it's always about depression and she ended her life with a by suicide and Ted Hughes is a monster. Ted Hughes is a monster. I don't deny that. Yeah, I can't believe that I haven't like bitched about Ted Hughes more in this episode. Sure. <laughs> Everything I know about him is bad and appropriately <laughs> so. I think he was really a bad guy, you know? Right. But like because he's so bad, it kind of covers up for Sylvia's own issues that, you know, we don't really know about or get much into there. You know, why would a person stay in a relationship with a monster like this? Because she was disordered, because she had a whole lot of problems. She could not leave this horrible person. She should have. You know, she did, actually. Yeah, and, she, and she did mm -hmm. at some points. Yes. Um, but it was very, very very incredibly hard for her to come to that decision to do it. And she did it mostly for the children. Of course, of course. And clearly, you know, again, like you do not have to look very far to see that a person like this 1000% has like intrinsic value here. You know, like they may, they may have like all kinds of difficulties that you have to look around in the world. You have to work around with them there. And like, they may be difficult to work with on all this, but like, you know, she's doing her best with a whole bunch of handicaps put on her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ted Hughes, he didn't actively stop her from writing, but he paid zero attention to the responsibilities that she had with child rearing, cooking, cleaning. And he was just like, why can't you write? What's your problem? Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it it's the plight of women writers, especially in, you know, not modern times. This was the 1950s, 1960s. It was the 60s. Yeah. I have a question for you. Okay. Did Sylvia leave a suicide note? No, but she left a note that said, call doctor, whatever her doctor's name was. Oh, okay. And it just said that. That's all it said. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Which okay. has made some people believe that it was more of a quote, unquote, and I hate this phrase, cry for help. That was what I was looking for. And because right. that's, that would fit the pattern more than anything else is that she didn't truly intend to kill herself. But it's also said that her head was way into the oven. Yeah, 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 yeah. My take on it is that this doctor was probably the closest person to her at this time. Yeah. And she trusted him to take care of everything afterwards. I do believe she really meant to kill herself. Sure. We'll never know by any means. Yeah. And, you know, all, all I can speak to is patterns there, you know, the, the because it's it's very, very common. The, the term for it is suicidality. Whenever a person's like feigning they're going to kill themselves or like they slash their wrists in, you know, a way that would not be lethal. 
you know, like that, that kind of thing, but, but also make a scene out of it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to kill myself. I was like, you couldn't kill yourself that way if you tried, you know, like, Mm -hmm. which is different than just like general self-harm, which is a different kind of, you know, animal, so to speak. Yeah. Totally different category, really. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, poor Sylvia, like she absolutely had suicidality on Mm -hmm. point for most of her life. You know, like she was always thinking about. Well, she absolutely meant to kill herself by taking those sleeping pills under the porch. Yeah. She took a bunch. Yeah, she and she expressed disappointment. As I understand, she wasn't keeping a diary at this time. But as I understand, as she expressed to friends, she was disappointed that it didn't work out. She was upset that she was found. Uh, I mean, three days is a long time to be anywhere. Yeah, and I was really researching this because, again, she was not keeping a diary at this time. So there's no first person account for her. I couldn't figure out if she was just unconscious the whole time or hiding. Oh, interesting. I don't know. Uh, In the bell jar, she was, I think, unconscious. Yes, they pulled her out unconscious. Yeah, Yeah. which probably then is true to life. Mm -hmm. Could be. The way she writes about it in the poem Lady Lazarus indicates she might have been conscious. I mean, truly, it would actually make sense that she would have been conscious for mm-hmm. the part of that. Like, you know, e- even an overdose of, of sleeping pills there, it's only got a half life of like, you know, I, I, I don't know, but not three days. That's too Yeah, long. right. Oh. That's what I was thinking. Like, you're not going to be out for three days and come out OK. Right. You know, I yeah. so I suspect that she was conscious for part of it and just didn't want to come out. That's a good point. It's like she probably would have had brain damage if she was mm-hmm. really like unconscious for three days here. But you know, yeah, who, yeah. Who knows? who knows? Thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad you were right on point with the Sylvia facts there. Here we <clears> had <throat> the collaborative Ben's medical corner and my input. I feel we so special. Great. You did awesome. Now that said, I do not want to like glaze over this too much there because it is entirely possible she also had something like bipolar on top of having bpd like this is that would make perfect sense like bipolar is a super common problem to have and people do have both commonly you know so like not not to not to say like this is the only thing that you know she wasn't struggling she was struggling with there because it absolutely could have been both thanks for indulging me as ever there's one more little thing, the insulin shock treatment. We need to talk oh, about Oh, yes. Yes. I was so curious about this. It's touched on so briefly in the book is that she's put on insulin. You're like, she's not diabetic, so what's happening here? Yeah. I had to look this up. So insulin shock treatment was essentially inducing hypoglycemic states for people, like shocking them into a hypoglycemic coma, maybe even inducing seizures that way because you can't have a seizure that way. And I think it was trying to affect the same thing that you get out of electroconvulsive therapy. Now, here's the thing. Insulin shock therapy was never standardized ever. It's just something where they said, well, the doctors and the nurses should just start giving shots at whatever doses they think are appropriate. And then, you know, I don't know, clean up the mess. (laughs) That sounds bad. Oh, yeah, it was bad. They stopped doing it. For no other reason besides the danger, but also because the amount of effort it took the doctors and the nurses to, like, support and monitor these patients who are on insulin shock therapy was just... Sounds like something that would happen in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It does. I don't think it's in that movie. I've not read the book, but... I have (laughs) read the book, but I don't think it happens. Yeah. So, we tried to watch the movie. 1979. Oh, gosh, that's right. Yes, we did. We failed to watch the movie. 1979. (laughs) Yeah, it's not available anywhere. 
you can order it on Amazon for like $42. Or Whoa. you can get the VHS for about $32. <laughs> Whoa. Jeez Louise. <laughs> yeah. It was not a popular movie. It did not do well critically or with audiences. That's all I know. Yep. Yep, that's about it. There was supposed to be a remake of it that was going to happen in 2016 or so. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be Kirsten Dunst's directorial debut, but it Kirsten didn't happen. Kirsten Dunst, I, I can see that. I I'd can love too. to see Greta Gerwig do it. Of course. She, she's she's just the, the directorial woman of the moment, of yeah. course. Well, we, we just did her last anything. month. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. We did. <laughs> okay. Well, Greta Gerwig is now not popular with us anymore. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, her moment's passed. <laughs> no, it's, it was actually supposed to start Dakota Fanning as Esther. So it could have been, you know, I'm, I would have been okay. interested. Mm, I don't love that actress. <laughs> really? No Dakota Fanning for you. All right. I think she's a little mm, bland. We did watch Sylvia, the mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow movie, 2001 Something like that. Something like that. Somewhere between 2000 and 2005. And Daniel Craig as Ted Hughes. Daniel Craig, yeah. James Bond. I have problems with this movie. Mm -hmm. How they represented her mental health was honestly kind of bizarre. Like, it was all seemingly reactionary to Ted Hughes being an asshole. Which is true. that's a very interesting point. Yeah, but only to an extent is it true. Ted Hughes was an asshole there, but there was basically nothing about her going to her psychiatrist. There was basically nothing about her being in institutions at all. Mm. The bell jar is not even mentioned that I could tell, you know, her writing it. Yeah. Who made the decisions about making this movie? Because, like, there are important things that are not here. Yeah. There are very few references to her actual writing. There's that seen in the boat yeah that's a really interesting point ted hughes in her actual life was a trigger not a cause oh man you you said it right there like yes he was a trigger he's continually like bringing terrible things into her life and she's responding out of proportion she's burning books because he did something terrible why are you burning your own work because you know Mm -hmm. your husband is a shit show huh yeah which makes sense if you're somebody who maybe has borderline personality disorder and has yeah. trouble coping with that. One of the things as I've been thinking about borderline personality disorder is about how it's like the dysregulated emotions that run so high. It feels like the right thing to do these things. You know, if it's a matter of like, I don't know, tearing the wallpaper down in your room or like, you know, burning your manuscript, this kind of thing. Like, no, in that. Do you mean the wallpaper that has the woman behind it? That's yellow. Oh, you see that too. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Yes. Very good. Very good. Sorry. Continue. Just saying in the moment, the emotions are running so high that doing these things feel like the right thing to do, you know, like, and like, it's hard for neurotypical people to look at that and say like, why did you do that? You know, like, yeah. you know? that's a very good analysis. I like that of the movie. Yeah. I do like Gwyneth Paltrow is not my favorite actress. Is she yeah. anybody's favorite actress? I don't know. Uh, she was really good in Shallow Hal. <laughs> okay. I thought she was very good in this. And yeah. I think that's my highest praise of this movie. I think that Gwyneth Paltrow did a good job with Sylvia. And I respect her for that. Mm-hmm. I'll go with that. I 
I agree. Of course, the question at the end of every episode is, is this book worth keeping? Is it inherently valuable? There are things people could get out of it. Is there maybe possibly some teaching, you know, aesthetics to it? I, I think you know my answer. Yes. yes this book is worth reading. Yes. You should read it maybe more than once if you're mm-hmm. so inclined. I would love to teach this book. Mm. I have never encountered a curriculum where it would be taught. I think it would be worth teaching, though. It's short enough to be taught in a literature unit. And I can't say exactly why I have never seen it taught. I think it's worth reading and also deserves to be in the literary canon. I wholeheartedly agree. It, It deserves to be in the canon. It is valuable. It is a human perspective that does not get enough light shown on it. To read it is to understand a little bit more about the human experience and and how varied it is. Now, as far as why people don't teach it, I am sure the answer is because everybody is scared of a high schooler committing suicide or a college person committing suicide for that matter. You know, like to think that if that should happen and the book was anywhere in their orbit, the person who taught it is going to feel guilty, I would assume. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And actually, I have been tempted to teach Lady Lazarus, but I have shied away from it because it is about suicide. And you don't, you know, you have to be very careful about that. So I think that's a very fair point. It reminds me of that thing from history, like how newspapers don't run stories of suicide because they are actually proven to increase the rate of suicide. If you read about it in the paper, you may be more inclined to do it yourself. So they don't Mm -hmm. do it on purpose. Like, what a fascinating and weird thing. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about that. I have thought about how much I'd like to teach this book, but I guess I really didn't think about the impact of the suicide there. Obviously, super duper heavy um, and... I don't know. Like, there's a whole philosophy we get into, like futility of life and stuff like that. And I don't think we're quite equipped to handle that one tonight. No, <laughs> but so deserves to be in the literary canon. I would say it can be taught at the college level. Yes, I I think that's totally fair. If you haven't read this, I recommend it. Absolutely, please read it. It'll take you not very long. Yeah. Hey, the audio looks read about Maggie Gyllenhaal, so you know it's all right. Yeah. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Also read Anna Karenina, and she was amazing. Wow. So you got to enjoy like 4,500 hours of Maggie Gyllenhaal? That's pretty great. Her voice is amazing. How long was that book? Was it like 45 hours? About that, yeah. Oh, my God. That's that's, that's a tome. (laughs) I loved it. I loved that book. I think the only thing we have left to cover is next month. Uh, We are reading the color purple. Yes, we are. Yeah. I have read this book twice just by choice. Because I okay. really like it, so I'm really excited to cover this. Yeah, and there's a lot of neat and different stuff in this book that I was expecting to talk yeah. about. Like, huh, okay. Especially in terms of literature and how things are written and the rules of literature that she yes. broke. Yep. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about that. Yep, even the presentation of her characters and like the choices they're making with their own lives are very like kind of groundbreaking that yeah pretty cool. pretty cool on the whole yeah we did it we did it yay we did it yay first of all in addition to talking about the avocado which yes. we will do later what are we yes. drinking Ben 
Okay, we are drinking ourselves uh, some hot buttered rum because it is the season for such a thing, and it's delicious. And you recommended drinking this just because it's Christmas time as we're recording. Mm -hmm. And I was reading Sylvia Plath's journals uh, just the other day to call some quotes from it, and she went and got the ingredients for hot buttered rum because (laughs) she had a sore throat. How about that? I realized I should have muted my mic. You probably heard me whisking the hell out of the sauce and talking to my cat about my other cat in case you thought I wasn't sufficiently obsessed with my cats. It uh, it sounded like you were whisking Garnet sauce. (laughs) Yes. I can see why it's called Garnet sauce. Yeah, it's got the color uh, of that. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a first on our podcast. We drink many a beverage here, but we've never actually eaten food from any book. Garnet sauce was what? Two parts French dressing, one part grape jelly, I think. Yeah, French dressing and grape jelly. Two ingredients which I'm not crazy about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to try this. I'm gonna, yeah, just, how are you doing it? I'm, I'm, I'm using a fork and knife. Spoon. You know, just, just, I, I've still got mine in my rind. I didn't even take them out. Oh, I took mine out of the rind. Hmm. Okay. It it literally does have what I would call like a country club flavor to it. Honestly, it's not bad. It's not bad. I agree. It's a little ridiculously rich might be a way to say it. Like, mm-hmm. boy, there's a, there's a lot going on here. Not something I would choose to eat, but I don't hate it as much as I was really sure I would. I believe you came up that we should do this as a dare, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. When I first read this book, I was like, that sounds disgusting, but I was so intrigued by it. I feel healthy every time I eat avocado. They want you to think that. <laughs> it's a Mexican conspiracy. 